0: I want to ask the question uh, uh, today, uh, how many of you have been a part of any kind of consulting type uh, group? How many of you have ever been asked to consult for a business or consult for another group or another company? Raise your hand if you've ever been a consultant before. Okay, a few of you have, some of you. Uh, How many of you have ever given counsel to a friend or counsel to a family member before? Raise your hand. I'm sure almost everybody has, right? Well, in the last uh, number of months, uh, I've had the privilege of uh, offering uh, some consultation in, 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 along with many others, uh, for two Christian organizations that are separate from Coast Bible Church. And these organizations, they're they're looking to improve their their ministry. They're looking to improve what they do for the work of the Lord. But in being a part of these consulting meetings, there is a great dichotomy between what I see in these meetings. You see, one organization that I go to uh, on a a very occasional basis, uh, there's the the sense that they're seeking advice and they're genuinely looking for answers. This organization is, is amassing people of various backgrounds and professions, and they really genuinely want advice. They genuinely want counsel. They're looking for ways to grow and to learn and to seek counsel. And then there's another group that I was a part of a long time ago, and they shall remain nameless. It's not a big deal, but I got the sense in the meetings and in meetings thereafter that, in as much as they were asking for counsel, in as much as they were, were saying to everyone, We'd like your input, in the end, It was almost as if they had a filter through which they were gathering all this counsel and all this advice. And rather than seeking to genuinely learn from the group that they had gathered, it seems that it was more likely the case that they were looking for a rubber stamp on what they were trying to accomplish. In our Bible story today, we are going to be in 1 Kings. Chapters 11 and 12. And in 1 Kings 11 and 12, we encounter the story of King Rehoboam. King Rehoboam. The year is 931 B.C. 931 B.C. And as as Rehoboam begins his reign in Israel, he encounters a major dilemma. A major dilemma. The people... Of the northern tribes of Israel, they come to his coronation ceremonies and they say, King Rehoboam, we've been worked very hard over the last number of years. We've labored long and hard for your father, King Solomon. And we wonder, King Rehoboam, will you be lenient toward us? Or will you be like your father, King Solomon? Will you lighten our workload? Or will you increase it? Rehoboam doesn't give them an answer right away. Instead, he takes a three day retreat and he goes and gathers consultants. He amasses people to a meeting where he seeks their counsel. And he gathers the elders of Israel, those who had served his father, King Solomon, And he asked them, what do you think I should do? What do you think I should do in response to their request for leniency? But the question remains, would King Rehoboam openly consider the counsel of his elders? Or would he filter through advisors until he found some who would rubber stamp his plans? The title of my message today is Counsel or a Rubber Stamp? What do we seek from our elders? Counsel or a Rubber Stamp? What do we seek from our elders? Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, I pray that Your Spirit would be upon this time of study in Your Word. I pray, Father, that as a community, as a family, That we would dive into Your Word expecting great things from it. That we would recognize that Your Word is living and powerful with the capacity to transform our lives. I pray, Father, that today, as we consider the story of King Rehoboam, that You would help us to see how we can grow in our faith. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. When King Rehoboam became king of Israel, he had inherited a powerful nation. A united nation. A mighty Israel. The year is 931 B.C. And Israel is passing through her golden age. His grandfather, King David, and his father, King Solomon, had done mighty things in Israel. They had built up the city of Jerusalem. They had fortified all the nation. King Solomon had erected the first Jewish temple, a glorious site in Jerusalem. Israel was in her golden age. But this golden age had come with a price. You see, King Solomon had a very, very heavy hand upon the people. He had a particularly heavy hand on those in the northern regions of Israel Where most of the costly resources were to be found. You might have heard of the cedars of Lebanon in your scriptures. That's to the northern regions. And so the people in the northern regions were especially worked hard by King Solomon. And here we have, uh, here we enter a story where King Rehoboam, Solomon's son, is about to be crowned the king. And he inherits. This powerful nation. And he inherits this powerful labor force. These people who've been working day and night for the cause of Israel. Now I want to ask the question, who were these laborers? Who were King Solomon's laborers? And in particular in the in the book of First Kings they call them forced laborers. In some sense, they were like slaves, some of them. Others of them were were given, you know, a little bit more respect and pay and whatnot, but nevertheless these people were compelled to serve the king. And these were who they were. Number one, there was a large group. Number one. Here it comes. A large group of non-Jewish Canaanites living in northern Israel. Now, these were the tribal peoples in the land. These were the peoples that Israel never kicked out. The various group of indigenous Canaanite tribes who were still living in the land of Israel, these people were the predominant uh, group who constituted Solomon's labor force and then thus Rehoboam's labor force. The second group, which was probably a smaller group nevertheless, the, they were the Jews. The Jews from northern, the northern tribes of Israel. And if you can look at those references to, to identify where they come into play. So, Solomon and now Rehoboam, his son, have a large group of indigenous people, not non-Jews, and a fair contingency of Jewish people, national Jews, who have the the rights of, of being called Israel. And together, they constitute a labor force. And so now, in our story, King Rehoboam inherits this labor force and he begins at his coronation he the, one of the first things that happen as he becomes king is this labor force comes up to him and as any labor force has like a labor force today or a labor union today they have their chief their labor union leader right how many of you are a part of a labor union today raise your hand if you're part of a labor union a few of you Okay, My wife is actually a part of a labor union. She's in the Screen Actors Guild. That's a labor union. And uh, I'm sure many of you have been a part of a teacher's union or, or some other workforce at times. Many of us have different perceptions of labor unions. We'll leave that for Pastor Doug to preach on next week. Uh, right, Doug? Is that the topic of your message? Okay, just kidding. We'll, we'll, we'll set that aside for politics one day. Regardless of what you think of a labor union we have King Rehoboam encountering the labor chief of these two groups. His name, Jeroboam. 1 Kings 11.28 says this. It says, The man Jeroboam, not to be confused with Rehoboam, the king, was a mighty man of valor, and Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. The Jewish labor force. So we have Jeroboam of great influence over the labor force in the northern tribes of Israel. And King Solomon, it says in verse 28, admired Jeroboam. He admired his bravery and his courage, his leadership. And so he appointed him to a high task in the kingdom. Yet, this admiration that Solomon had for Jeroboam, would soon wane. In fact, it would suddenly wane. It would go from admiring Jeroboam to hating Jeroboam. Why the sudden change? Take a look earlier in the chapter 11 of 1 Kings. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord as did his father David. So the Lord became angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and have not kept My covenant, and My statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you, and give it to your servant, who is Jeroboam. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son Rehoboam for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Solomon's admiration for Jeroboam as his servant and leader quickly turns to hatred and envy. And as you can imagine, Solomon is not too pleased with the idea of His kingdom largely passing outside of His lineage and going to a servant in His kingdom. About the same day this happens, later on in our text, we encounter 1 Kings 1129 29-31. This is Jeroboam encountering this news. Now notice what it says. It says, Now it happened at this time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonites, met him on the way. Then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to you, Jeroboam. Ahijah the prophet had predicted that Jeroboam, Solomon's servant, would one day assume control of 80% of Solomon's kingdom. Ten tribes of Israel. You can be sure that news of this prophecy filled the land of Israel. Solomon heard it. Jeroboam heard it. And you can be sure that this prophecy spread throughout the land of Israel. Everyone was privy to this prophetic utterance. And not surprisingly, King Solomon sought to kill Jeroboam to prevent this prophecy from coming true. And so Jeroboam quickly flees Israel. He leaves And he goes to Egypt. And he remains in Egypt until the death of King Solomon. Now fast forward a few years. Solomon has died. Jeroboam has returned to Israel. The northern labor force has welcomed him back as their leader. Solomon's son, King Rehoboam, is traveling to Shechem in the middle of Israel to be crowned the king. And he encounters the labor force and Jeroboam, his father's servant turned enemy. Can you imagine the tension in this meeting? This is a bad labor meeting. This is a rough labor union meeting with the employer King Rehoboam. We pick up our story in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 3. Turn there if you will. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 3. Then Rehoboam Excuse me, then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, saying, Your father, your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. So he said to them, Depart for three days, then come back to me. And the people departed. And then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived. And he said, How do you advise me to answer these people? Did you catch verse 3? Verse 3 should, in in a real sense, blow your mind. In verse 3, Jeroboam the labor union leader, the one prophesied to get ten tribes of Israel, the one who's going to inherit 80% of the kingdom according to Ahijah the prophet, has just spoken on behalf of the northern tribes to King Rehoboam and he said, tell you what, We will serve you if you will merely lighten our load. Folks, that's the deal of the century. In essence, Jeroboam is saying to King Rehoboam, I'll forego my claim to the throne. I'll forego my influence and control over the northern tribes of Israel, if you will merely lighten their load, ease the burden of the people under my care, and we will serve you, King Rehoboam. Jeroboam is willing to forego the fulfillment of Ahijah's prophecy if Rehoboam will simply lighten the load. Now, despite this amazing offer, King Rehoboam says he needs to think about it. I need to think about that. I'm not not quite sure if that's a good deal. So he takes a three-day hiatus and he leaves this meeting. He leaves his coronation ceremony and he goes to consult with the elders of Israel. Now, who are these elders? Verse 6 indicates that they were under King Solomon while he lived. Most likely, these were older men in Solomon's government, each of them possessing a great deal of wisdom in matters of running the nation. They advised Solomon in terms of politics, economics, social and religious issues, issues of war. They were elders in every sense of the word, prudent, intelligent, sensible, judicious. They had grown wise through their years. They existed to give sound advice to the king of Israel. And that's precisely what they do. Take a look at verse 7. Verse 7. And they spoke to Rehoboam saying, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. The elders give King Rehoboam great Advice. In fact, they give him the same kind of advice that God had given Moses hundreds of years earlier when he talked about the future king of Israel. You see, Israel, God had always said, don't ask for a king. But nevertheless, in his providence, he knew that Israel would. And he says, okay, when you do ask for a king, these are the kinds of things I'd like the king to do. Deuteronomy chapter 17 says the king of Israel shall write for himself a copy of this law and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the lord his god and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart the heart of the king may not be lifted up above his brethren that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left that he may prolong his days in his kingdom he and the child in his children in the midst Of Israel. Moses, the Lord through Moses makes it very clear. The king of Israel was to be a man of the people, not over the people. He was to be a man of and for the people, not above and overbearing toward the people. So we see the elders of King Rehoboam are giving Rehoboam biblical counsel. They're saying, they're saying, show leniency here. Show compromise. This wisdom comes with years. you know. Um, I'm grateful for uh, the elders in our church. And I don't just mean the elders in office. I mean those who are older in our church. With your age comes wisdom. With your age comes the knowledge of when to die on a hill, when to stick your stake in the ground, and when to compromise, and when to find common ground, when to show leniency. And we, as a church family, look to you, our elders, those who are older and wiser in this congregation, to remind us of when to stand firm and when to show leniency, when to show compromise. And we invite you to give us those kinds of that kind of counsel. I invite you to give that counsel to me. This is good counsel. These men counseling King Rehoboam know unequivocally this is a time to show leniency. The people are frustrated. They're overburdened. And the best thing for your kingdom today, King Rehoboam, is to show them leniency. Notice again verse 7 in their counsel. They say, be a servant. Be a servant. They say, speak good words. That is to say, bargain and compromise. That's what that idiom means in Hebrew. Bargain and compromise. This is not compromising integrity. This is not compromising and allowing sin to come in. No. This is a reasonable compromise between king and subjects. As Kenny Rogers would say, you've got to know when to hold them. Know when to fold them. Know when to walk away. Know when to run. Anybody want to sing? Hey, what does the new king do? What does he do? Is he going to listen to their counsel? Does he even want their counsel? Or does he already have a preconceived plan? Does he want genuine counsel? Is he humbly seeking it? Or does he want a rubber stamp on his existing plans for the northern tribes of Israel? Take a look at verses 8-11. through It says this, But King Rehoboam rejected the advice which the elders had given him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. And he said to them, What advice do you give? As if he didn't know. Then the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you should speak to this people who have spoken to you, saying, Your Father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Then you shall say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist." And now, whereas my Father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My Father chastised you with whips and I will chastise you with scourges. Notice again the first verse in this this section. Do you find it interesting that the author of 1 Kings found that the best way to describe this story was to indicate that King Rehoboam rejected their advice, the advice of the elders, before he had even consulted with the young men. Now, we can't be sure if that was truly the pattern. Perhaps this is just narrative style here. But I would argue that the author of 1 Kings here is probably doing this for good reason. He's saying very clearly, Rehoboam Heard the advice of the elders and rejected it outright before he had even heard what his own generation was about to say. Talk about a man looking for a rubber stamp. He goes on to consult with the young men of his generation. He turns to his peers. To those men of his own age, of his own upbringing, his friends, and rejects the counsel of the elders. And I ask you today, when you seek counsel, you've, you've probably sought it this week from someone, or at least in the last month. Who did you go to? Who did you go to? That is not to say that it's not wrong to ask peers for counsel. I think it's healthy. It's healthy. Good. I think our peers, those who are of our own age and of our own experience, of our own uh, length in life, oftentimes can give us excellent counsel. However, it is exceedingly more likely that when we need counsel on some matter family matter, work matter, whatever personal life matter it is exceedingly more likely that an older and wiser person, an elder, is going to give us the best advice. Who do you go to for counsel? When you're in a bind, do you go to your peers in your workplace? Do you call up your friends and say, hey, what do you think? Or do you genuinely seek the counsel of older, wiser Christians? Are you willing to listen to difficult advice at times? Or do you seek a rubber stamp? Rehoboam's peers give him poor advice. They turn to Rehoboam and they, they say, Flex your muscles, Jeroboam, Rehoboam. Show him who's boss. Look him in the eye and say, I'm going to be tougher than my father. Look Jeroboam in the eye and say, bow down to me. I'm the king. You're my servant. My little finger is going to have more power in it than all of my father's waste. Then you'll get some respect, King Rehoboam, they reason. Then you'll get some respect around here. And prove to everyone who the real king of Israel is. The great Jewish historian of old, Josephus, writes a comment that I think is apropos about this story. He says, The king, Rehoboam, was pleased with this advice and thought it agreeable to the dignity of his government to give the laborer such an answer. And Sarah Japheth Uh, of our day and age, a great scholar, writes, in short, sharing Rehoboam's inclinations and knowing his preferences, the young men offer him the advice he is hoping to hear. It is as if to say he turned down the volume of the elders when he didn't like what he was hearing and turned up the volume of his peers when they rubber-stamped his idea. It was bad advice. It was awful advice. You know, we all, I have no doubt, everyone in this room appreciates being a person of influence. We, we, we appreciate it when people seek our advice and look to us for counsel and guidance and, and direction in life. We, we feel you know respected and, and honored. We enjoy being people of influence. But nevertheless, nevertheless, it is a grave error to suppose that exerting strength and power will command the respect of people. It is a grave error to suppose that exerting strength and power will command the respect of people. The more a man shows himself to be strong, the weaker he probably is. And the more a person tries to control others, the less likely they probably will be able to do so. you want to be a person of influence, I would argue that a great display of humility and selflessness is what will give you more influence than power, might, and strength. People are drawn to those who show themselves to be humble, calm, sure, steady. People are drawn away from those who attempt to prove their worth, attempt to prove that they're worth respecting. Verse 12, we find King Rehoboam's answer to the people, and not surprisingly, he answers with the advice of his peers. So Jeroboam and all the people came came to King Rehoboam the third day, and the king answered the people roughly and rejected the advice which the elders had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, I will chastise you with scourges. So the king did not listen to the people, for the turn of events was from the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord has spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nabat. Despite his best efforts to thwart, to thwart and stop Ahijah's prophecy that Jeroboam would one day rise up to lead the northern tribes of Israel, King Rehoboam's words to the people of Israel actually served to expedite the fulfillment of the prophecy. He thought his display of power would stifle the prophetic utterance. And in the end, his display of power sped up the prophetic utterance of Ahijah. King Rehoboam sought to tame and control Israel by harsh words. But he neglected the advice of the elders. And that turned out to be a terrible, terrible mistake. Notice how Israel responds in verse 16. Now when all Israel saw saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king saying, What share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to your house, O David. What do these words mean? Somewhat uh, poetic terminology that uh, maybe doesn't always jive with, with uh, our way of saying things. I'll give it to you in one word. Ready? Disenfranchised. Disenfranchised. The people of the northern tribes heard King Rehoboam's answer and immediately became disenfranchised with their king, with their nation, with their nation's accomplishments, with identifying with this nation. They said, if that's your answer to us and all of our hard labor, if that is your harsh word in response to our request for leniency, then we want nothing of this. We are disenfranchised we are neglected and we have no share in this kingdom. No share in the nation of Israel. Have you ever been disenfranchised? Have you ever worked hard, really hard for something? And in the end, you received no reward for your labor? I know I have. I'm quite confident all of you have. When you... When you, when you labor so hard and long and, and you, you put so much effort to a company that you work for or to an organization or to your family or, or, or to your friends. You invest in a friend and in the end, they just, hey, thanks. And you kind of get neglected by that friend or neglected by that company or neglected by that family member. You put all this effort... You labored so long and hard, and yet they said, yeah, okay, hey, good job, pat on the back. And you thought, don't you even know what I've done for you? You know what? This is a real feeling here. This is a real and genuine emotion taking place in the northern tribes of Israel. I, it's authentic. It's genuine, and I think it happens all the time. It happens in our lives all the time. What share have we in David? Where's our part? Where's our inheritance? But you know, I want to ask the question. You know, we, we, we're identifying with the northern tribes and we're identifying with their emotion, but I want to ask you one follow-up question to this. I don't, I wonder, I wonder about this question here. I wonder if the laborers are justified in their request for fairness and equity. You say, well, of course they're justified. Of course they're justified. They, they worked long hours. They labored hard and got nothing. Of course they're justified. They should have every reason to be angry at the king and angry with their nation and want no part of it. Of course they're justified. Right? Maybe. On the one hand... Our God is a God of justice, equity, fairness. He fights for the afflicted. He's on the side of the oppressed. He is champion of the less fortunate. That's the God of the Bible, no doubt. There's something else about the character of God. There's something else about the nature of God. His Son, Jesus Christ, that we learn from as we read our New Testaments. And it's summed up in two words. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. Jesus argues in the latter part of Mark 8, we're going to be looking at this in two weeks, to deny yourself is to be the epitome of a follower of Jesus Christ. To deny yourself is to be the epitome of a follower of Jesus Christ. And hear me hear me loud and clear on this one. It is precisely in the moments that we have opportunity to exert our rights, It is precisely in the moments when we have the occasion to exert our rights and exercise them and don't, that God looks upon us and says, That is a son of mine. It is precisely in those moments where we have every good reason being disenfranchised, neglected, and we say, It's my turn, it's my turn, I want mine. It's in those moments when we don't react that way that God looks upon us and says, that person is a daughter of mine. There is one who is following my example. You know, folks, vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay if you've been wronged, if you're disenfranchised, so what? That's my response to you today. Get over it. You know why? Because the sooner you get over it and deny yourself and not exert your personal rights and not demand that you get yours, the moment you get over that is the day you are growing exponentially on the path to following Jesus Christ. And so are you disenfranchised today? I say, get over it. Deny yourself. Become more like Jesus Christ. And you know what will happen? In your humility, in that humble state, He will lift you up. He will lift you up. He'll take care of that oppression that you feel and that neglect. He'll take care of it. And one day you'll be rewarded for it. But in the meantime, wait patiently upon the Lord. Wait patiently for Him to repay and to reward when it's time. King Rehoboam was exerting his power and the northern tribes of Israel were demanding fairness and equity. Quite frankly, both were wrong. Both were wrong. What would become of this situation? Look what happens when both are wrong. Verse 17 says, But Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was in charge of the revenue, which is actually the the, the laborers. That's a mistranslation. It should be the laborers. He's in charge of the forced laborers. And all of Israel, the northern tribes, stoned him with stones and he died. Therefore, King Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Now it came to pass, when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they sent for him and called him to the congregation and made him king over all Israel. There was none who followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. You know, both parties stood their ground. They put their stake in the ground and declared themselves ready to die on their respective hills. And not surprisingly, when King Rehoboam sends his first delegate, his first ambassador, into the northern rogue tribes of Israel, it's not surprising that Israel kills him in a mighty act of defiance. They defied Rehoboam. And they went on to name Jeroboam their king. And folks, from that day forward, the mighty nation of Israel divided into two nations. Judah to the south and Israel to the north. From that day forward, civil war, war with pagan nations of Assyria, Babylon, strife and division and dissension would characterize the next 350 years in that nation because of this day that we read about behind us. It was this conflict that divided the nation and led to 350 plus years of strife. And and perhaps very ironically, this dispute... Which began over hard labor. This dispute, which began over the difficult and unlenient labor of the northern tribes of Israel. You know how it ended for all of Israel? It ended in awful labor. Lamentations 1 1. How lonely sits the city of Jerusalem that was full of people. How like a widow is she who is great among the nations. The princess among the provinces has become a slave. And in chapter 5, we labor and have no rest. We have given our hand to the Egyptians and the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. You know that word bear there is the same word for labor in our story in First Kings twelve. The dispute that began over labor ended with Israel in exile, enslaved, serving the nations of Babylon and Assyria. What can we learn from our story today? I want to say this very clearly in our application. Folks, not every hill is worth dying on. It's just not in fact few. <laughs> Very few hills are worth dying on. Neither are our personal rights always worth exercising. Let us seek the mind of Christ as we live life at home, work, church, etc. Don't always exert your rights. Chances are, God is displeased when you do so. Number two, when we need counsel, are we more apt to ask our peers or our elders for wisdom and direction? We have a lot of wise, older people in this church. And folks, go to them for counsel. I guarantee you they will want to listen. I guarantee you they will carve out time for you, even a lunch for you, and and to just sit and to to learn about your issues and to give you wise counsel. Three, are we humble enough to receive difficult counsel or rebuke when needed? Or do we filter through advisors until we find one who tells us what we want to hear? You know, it's easy, it's easy to... I can, I can say that I want counsel and I can strategically pick people to give me counsel and I already know what they're going to tell me. That's one way of getting counsel. But really, that's a rubber stamp. If we're genuinely seeking counsel, we're going to be going to older, more mature persons and asking them genuinely, hey, I need your thoughts. Do you need to correct me? Do I need to change my path? Folks, are we looking for counsel or a rubber stamp when we go to our elders? May we genuinely seek their counsel and rebuke. And may we avoid looking to rubber stamp our preconceptions. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, thank You for the men and women of this church who are older and wiser than us. I pray, Father, that we would reject the pattern of King Rehoboam and instead that we would genuinely, earnestly, humbly seek the counsel of those who are older and wiser than us. Father, when these things don't happen, we know that division and strife occurs and is abundant. Father, we see this in the story of Israel dividing into two nations. Civil war. All because both parties put their stake in the ground. Father, may we be people who are willing and ready to compromise, not our integrity, but compromise our rights. Not always exert them, but instead deny ourselves and follow Your Son. Father, may we have His mind as we interact with those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.